What is the gospel? Who do we share the gospel with? What responses are we likely to see when we do share the gospel? These and many other questions are answered in the Gospel of Mark, among many other places in the, in the New Testament. Last week we did a wrap-up of the book looking at the main themes, but today I want to begin our series on the subject of evangelism by looking at excerpts from throughout the book of Mark that specifically have to do with that subject. The main idea this morning is preach the gospel about Jesus to sinners no matter what. Preach the gospel about Jesus to sinners no matter what. Begin in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What is the gospel for Jesus' Israelite audience? The gospel of the good news was the nearness of God's kingdom in the person of the Messiah. And what was the response? The response he called them to, Jesus called them to repent and to believe in his message. It's important for us to note that the way the word repentance is used in the New Testament is not in the the idea of I just changed my mind. Um, I used to think that vanilla ice cream was the best, and now I think chocolate ice cream is the best. That's one of those sort of insignificant kind of things, like to you it might be really important, but in the grand scheme of life, that's insignificant. I just changed my mind about something. Um, Repentance in the... Old Testament and the New Testament, we saw this in the book of Zechariah, and we see it here in the Gospel of Mark. Repentance is a turning away from something and a turning to something that affects more than just the way we think about it. So in the Old Testament, when God said to the people of Israel, return to me, repent of your sin, it was turn away from your idols, stop worshiping your idols, turn to me and worship me. And worshiping God is a lot more than I used to think this way about God and now I think this way about God. It is something that involves not just our thinking, but also our feelings and desires and also our actions. A great illustration of this would be in the book of Ephesians where it says, uh, let the one who is a thief steal no longer. So stop the action of stealing. Let him work with his hands to do that which is good so that he can share with those who are in need. And we say, well, great, he stops stealing and he starts giving stuff away. No, it's this transformation of an attitude of I am going to get, I'm going to take, I'm going to be greedy, and I'm going to do no matter what to get what I want, to I'm going to work hard because that's what God calls me to do. And sometimes we're happy if a thief stops being a thief and starts working hard. But that's not the biblical arc of repentance. It doesn't stop with, I was doing a bad thing, now I'm doing a good thing. It's doing the good thing for the right reasons in a way that pleases God. Why is he working? Because it honors God, as we see in other places. But more importantly, in this context, in Ephesians 4 and 5, it's that he turns away from stealing to work hard so that he can give. So, for example, the story of Zacchaeus. He's a thief. He quits his job as a tax collector and goes to do a different job. And in the process, he gives away his unjust wealth. In fact, even four times what he had taken from the people around him. That is an evidence of genuine repentance. It's a transformation that involves a lot more than just, I used to think this way, now I think this way. Why am I making a big deal about this? Because there's people in our world that have said, as long as there's that mental assent, that, that sort of in-your-head kind of agreement with the truth, that's good enough. That's all God's really looking for. And then they've said, well, then that means if you, you, can, do, you can live your life however you want and, and call yourself a Christian. That's not what God calls us to as Christians. God calls us as people who were sinners, are being changed by God's grace into less and less sinners and more and more righteous and like Jesus, that's what God calls us to do in repentance. Jesus had that message to the people he was preaching to. Turn over to chapter 2, if you would like to follow along. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, we see the encounter with the man who's paralyzed. The friends bring this man, they make a hole in the roof, they drop him down through the roof, lower him down carefully. Jesus heals him so he can now walk when he could not walk before. But he sees the religious leaders standing there and he knows what's in their hearts. And he says, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and pick up your pallet and walk? He's just said your sins are forgiven. They say nobody can do that except God. Jesus says, all right, 
How can you know that I am in fact God and from God? Get up and walk. I've done both. I've forgiven his sins and I have made him whole again, physically speaking. And so the gospel involves not just um, or the gospel involves forgiveness of sins. And the only way that this is possible is because Jesus is in fact God. So the, the religious leaders were right that only God can forgive sins. They were wrong in thinking Jesus isn't the Messiah, so he can't do it. A few verses later in this chapter, verses 14 through 17, we look at the audience to whom Jesus is taking his message. He sees Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth and says, follow me. And he gets up and follows him. So Jesus calls someone who's despised by the people of Israel, someone who pretty much all the tax collectors were cheats and liars and betrayers of their people. And Jesus says, hey, come follow me. And then he goes over to his house. He's reclining at the table in Matthew's house, Levi's house. And many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus. The scribes saw him eating with them and said, why is he doing this? Jesus said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Who's Jesus taking his message to? Sinners. As Christians, ironically, sometimes we're afraid to associate with sinners because of what other usually Christians might think of us. Is there danger in loving sin? Absolutely. Is there danger in loving sinners? Jesus loved them even when almost no one else would. So to the extent that we're trying to be like Jesus, you and I need to be around sinners. On the subject of application for evangelism, if you don't know anybody apart from God, how are you supposed to lead anybody to God? And obviously all of us need to draw closer to God even once we've begun to trust him. But there are people who desperately need to hear the message of Jesus and the salvation that he brings. And if we are overly worried about what other people think in terms of taking the gospel to people that are clearly sinners, we're not going to follow the example of Jesus. Sometimes I think we get mixed up on what is God's goal for the church in an ideal kind of way and what is practically the thing that God calls us to do. So, what is God's goal for the church? God's goal for the church is that it's composed of believers. And the reality is, almost no church is completely composed of believers. And I don't say that because I think necessarily any of you aren't following after God. I'm just saying there, are, there is in any church, there are people who uh, assume they are Christians who are not, there are those who know themselves not to be Christians but don't want to make a big deal of things so they keep acting like they are. And then there are those who genuinely follow after God. Why do I say that this is the case? Because Jesus says there are going to be people who said we did miracles and we did all these things in your name and Jesus says you have no part with me, depart from me into everlasting judgment. And so if there are people that are 100% convinced they're following God who end up and condemned by God, away from him for all of eternity. That's not something that was just true in Jesus' day. The fact that there are people who claim to be Christians but clearly are not uh, is evidence in a story like that of Simon in Acts chapter 8. Peter calls him to repentance after Simon has supposedly repented and started being a part of the church because Simon says, hey, it's pretty cool that you can lay hands on people and they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I want to buy this trick so I can, you know, make my magic act more impressive and more convincing and gain more uh, interest from the people. So there are people, and false teachers do this according to 1 Peter and 1 2 Timothy and Titus, false teachers use godliness as a cover-up or as a tool or as this sort of twisted thing to manipulate people. We see this with political leaders. They want votes from Christians. So they're like, I'm a Christian. Very little to no evidence in their lives that that's in fact true. But they're like, Christians will fall for that. They'll vote for me because I said I'm a Christian. Christian. 
we should be less afraid of whether people are going to give us a hard time for sharing the gospel with people that really need Jesus and more concerned about whether we're pleasing God in the way that we're living. Because as try as hard as we might, the church is never going to be 100% pure. And so if our goal is to keep all the sinners out, we should close our doors and all go home. Because all of us at various points throughout this week have been sinners. The point is not that the church is a place where no sinners can come in. It's a place where the sinners who do come in are by God's grace seeking to change and be like Jesus because they have a relationship with him. And so Jesus took the gospel to tax collectors and sinners. He spent time with them. He didn't do the things that they did. He wasn't himself a tax collector or a prostitute or a murderer or a political rebel or whatever else that was represented in that group. But he spent time with people who were all those things because they needed God. And they knew they needed God. Mark 4 was the passage we read this morning. It's a long passage. We won't go into a lot of detail. But in it, we see various responses to the gospel. We see the situation in which the word is received, but Satan takes it away. The situation in which persecution kills the initial joy of following after God, where worldliness chokes out the the seeming promise of what's going to take place. And finally, where the good soil receives and bears fruit. I mentioned this when we were going through Mark 4 earlier in our study of the Gospel of Mark, but these are tests of a true follower of Jesus. Are you distracted by Satan? Are you discouraged by difficulty? Are there worldly things that are choking out holiness in your life? Or are you bearing fruit? This fruit comes in different amounts at different seasons. There's a season for grapes. There's a season for blueberries. There's a season for tomatoes. Different times of year, there's different harvests, different amounts of harvest. We just planted our garden. It needs more nutrients in the soil. The tomatoes aren't bearing as much as they should, and the corn is really struggling. But we're getting something out of it, and that's the mark between something that's alive and something's dead, that you get something out of it, right? There were a few plants that were sickly, that were diseased, that were dying. We had to yank those out because they were not bearing any fruit and wouldn't, and they'd corrupt the rest of them around it. There's a lot of parallels from all of that idea of gardening and farming to what God is doing in and among the world today. We see parallels to these responses in the the book of Acts. Some wonder, they're curious, they want to hear further about what's being said. Some mock or reject, that's not for me, I don't want that. And some believe. And the amazing thing is in the book of Acts and throughout the rest of the New Testament, we see that sometimes the ones who are curious end up being the ones who follow Jesus. Sometimes the ones who mock and reject end up being the ones that follow Jesus. And sometimes the ones who seem initially to believe don't stick it out on the long haul. And so it's easy for us to assume we know which of those groups people are in based on their response to the gospel when you and I share it with them. You don't know that person's heart. You don't know the trajectory of their life. There might be someone who curses and swears, I want nothing to do with this Jesus you're talking about. There's a moment when Peter was like that, and he was a follower of God. And there are people who say, oh, yeah, I want that. But their reasons for wanting it have nothing to do with God's reasons for wanting to save them, and and it doesn't last. And so our job is not to ensure the response. It's to faithfully proclaim the word. And we sometimes have some idea of which kind of response we're getting in the moment, but we shouldn't write that person off or stop watching out for them just because of that initial response. Uh, One chapter over, Mark 5, verse 19. The man who's demon-possessed, after Jesus heals him and delivers him, he wants to follow Jesus. But Jesus says, Report to your people what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. I was having this conversation with someone recently that evangelism is essentially that. Here's what God's done for me. Here's how he's shown me mercy. Sometimes we think evangelism is more in the category of apologetics. So you have Stephen, who's arguing Jesus is God from the Old Testament. You have Paul, who's doing the same kind of thing. We're like, I don't think I can do that. I can't answer all these objections of pagans to what the Bible says. What did Jesus tell the guy who just got healed from demons? Go tell people, 
here's what Jesus did for me, and here's how God showed mercy to me. Every person who has a relationship with God can proclaim the goodness of God to someone else. You don't need a seminary education. You don't need to have gone to 50 Sunday school classes. You don't even need to have read the Bible the whole way through. Now, should you do all of those things to some degree or other? Get more training, read the Bible, whatever? Sure, those things aren't bad. But if you know Jesus, you can tell somebody else, here's the Jesus that I know. So we make it this huge impossible task. The impossible thing is what we're going to see a little bit later. It's the people getting saved part. What God calls us to do is not an impossible thing. It's just intimidating and scary, and sometimes we're hesitant to do it. But at its core, it's a really basic thing. Here's God's mercy to me. Why don't you go meet him too? A little bit later in the chapter, Mark 5, verses 36 and 39, we see the need for faith in a response to Jesus. The man that came to Jesus saying, Can you heal my daughter? What did Jesus say? He says, Don't be afraid anymore. Only believe. And then, when the little girl has died, he says, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They begin laughing at him. To the extent that Jesus has power over life and death, even when that makes no sense from a worldly perspective, that's an aspect of the gospel that has to stand behind what we believe and what we're proclaiming to the people around us. We're going to see that again a little bit later in Mark. Mark chapter 6, verse 4. We see Jesus rejected by his family and his neighbors. He starts to do miracles. He starts to teach. The people said, where did he get these things? What is this wisdom? Is not this just the carpenter? Isn't his family right here? And they took offense at him. Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. Sometimes the gospel is not received by the people we think would be most receptive to it. We think the person who's a pretty good person, from a human perspective, who knows some things about God, the moral person, the upright person, the religious person, that person is going to be the person that trusts Jesus because they're already this close, right? Ironically, this close is sometimes much more of an obstacle than this close. Why do the tax collectors and sinners have such a ready response to Jesus? Because they knew that they were doing wrong. Religious people don't want to admit it. They want to say, well, I'm, I'm basically a good person. Do you ever lie, cheat, steal, lust, hate people? Well, yeah, but not that much. And something for them becomes an obstacle to turning to Jesus. And sometimes that something is an assumed familiarity with God. Jesus' family thought they knew him because they grew up with him. But they had only gotten glimpses of the fact that he was the Son of God. Mary got that glimpse when they were down at the temple, right? When Jesus is 12 years old. They got a glimpse when they're at the temple when he's eight days old. And beyond that, there's no other recorded examples of them having much of a sense that there was going to be anything remarkable about Jesus' life despite all the promises and the amazing circumstances of his birth. Mary finds it hard to believe that he's the Messiah despite her faith right before he's, he's conceived. Jesus' brothers openly mock him up until the point of his death. If I can take a moment and make quick application to parents. Sometimes we think familiarity with God and his word is an asset and it can be a liability. Here's what I mean by that. If we think that just because we've exposed our kids to the Bible over and over again that it's always sunk in and we don't do the hard work of praying fervently for their souls and having open and honest conversations with them about God and we assume because they're in a Christian school or homeschooled or in church all the time that they're walking with God. I've had too many people I've known along the way where that was pretty much the, the assumption and it was shown to be completely false. Some of you wrestle with the struggle that adult children who grew up in church aren't in church and don't seem to be walking with God. A passage like this, I think, would tell us two things. One is, it shouldn't shock us. 
because if Jesus' own family rejected him, why are we shocked if some of our own family would reject God even if we've all been in church together? On the other hand, there is hope. If James becomes the pastor of the church at Jerusalem after Jesus dies, God does an amazing work in that short interval between Jesus' death and the founding of the early church and some eight to ten years later when there's that encounter in Acts 15. So in less than a decade, if I'm remembering the timeline correctly, James goes from being someone who mocks Jesus as the Messiah, well, yeah, he's my half-brother, but he's not the Messiah, to someone who is leading the church at Jerusalem through persecution in service to the Messiah he had formerly rejected. That means there's hope. Don't give up on your kids, your relatives, your other people that you know who for a time were in church, heard the Bible, all those sorts of things. Pray for them because God's the one that's going to save them, but don't give up on them. And if they're still at home with you, take the time to probe their hearts by God's grace and point them to God's word because just the fact that they're sitting in here this morning is not a guarantee they're going to walk with God the rest of their lives. Mark 6, a little bit later in the chapter, 7 through 13, Jesus sends out his disciples. Same message that Jesus had. Where were they supposed to go? Verse 13, wherever Jesus sent them, what are they supposed to say? Verse 12, they went out and preached that men should repent. We already talked about repentance being a complete transformation of life, not just a change of our minds. It's really interesting, too, that the way that Jesus sends them out is completely different from the way that we think the people ought to be sent out today. So there's sort of two realities here. If we are selfish with money and we want nice stuff for us, so we send the garbage to the missionaries, that's a wrong attitude. On the other hand, there's also an attitude that says, unless life is completely comfortable for missionaries, they shouldn't go out because God doesn't want the thing to happen. And we look at that in terms of missions, evangelism, all the different things that God has done in the history of the church. There's been a lot of instances when it wasn't entirely clear where the money was going to come from to pay different bills. It wasn't entirely clear, you know, what all the details were going to be. Adoniram Judson goes out from the church that's supporting him in America on the trip over to where he's going. He reads the Bible, becomes convinced of something about believers' baptism, writes a little book on it, writes a letter to the church that sent him out, says, hey, I know you guys can't support me anymore because you don't agree with this thing that I've just discovered from the New Testament, writes a letter to a different church and says, hey, we've never met, but would you be willing to pay for me to be overseas in this country when missions is still a brand new thing? And you know what? Life was pretty hard for an Adoniram Judson, but God was with him and God worked through his life. Sometimes we're scared to be in that position. But if Jesus sent out the disciples and looked after them, Jesus can look after us too. And I'll be honest, I trend toward the side of planning for the future, right? If I'm going to go on a vacation, I'd like to know that there's at least one place where I can get food, right? Uh, but when it comes to the Christian life, that's not always a mark of wisdom. Sometimes it's lack of faith if we always have to see what's coming next before we're willing to do what God calls us to do. Mark 7, Jesus points out that sin defiles from within. This is why it's so important in understanding in the context of the gospel, Mark seven fourteen through 23. He says, There's nothing outside the man that can defile him coming in, but things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. And this sort of came out of this discussion of the disciples eating with unwashed hands. If you eat with unwashed hands, it wasn't a germ thing. It was a ritual cleansing thing. If you eat your bread with hands that haven't been cleansed according to the traditions of the religious leaders, then you are defiled by this unclean thing that you are eating that is a good gift God's given you for food. And Jesus says, eating bread without doing the ritual cleansing before you eat the bread, that's not the real big issue for you. The big issue is, murders and lusts and all these sorts of things, evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness, all these things proceed from within to without and defile the man. Which means Christianity is not about conformity to an external moral code. 
You being a good person in the sight of the people around you is not going to fix the fact that your heart's corrupt and wicked. You need God's power to change your heart. That's the message we need to take people. Not Jesus will clean up your pretty good life. Jesus is going to... You ever had an infection and you've had it swell up and get full of like red and pus and nasty things breeding there? If it gets really bad, you know what they have to do? They have to cut it open and let all that nasty stuff come out if it's ever going to heal. That's what God does in salvation. He probes the depths of our heart and all the corruption and putrefaction of sin comes out and he heals us. And what we want to do is we want to put a little bit of makeup on this huge, weltering, blistery, sore thing and be like, it's all better. That's what happens if we add religious practices to a dead, corrupt, wicked heart. We're putting makeup on a sore that's going to kill the person. That's not what God wants to do. He wants to deal with the heart issues in the gospel. Quick aside on this. Sometimes we hear people use Christian-y kind of phrases. We're like, well, that person's a Christian. Sometimes we've got to probe a little bit more. Just because someone says pray doesn't mean that that person has a relationship with God. Just because a person mentions the Bible doesn't mean that that person has a relationship with God. People find the Bible inspirational, and they'll buy the little plaques from the Christian bookstore, and they'll hang it on their wall or put it somewhere or give it to someone as a gift because they thought it was cool, not because they have a walk with God. And I don't say this to discredit people's walk with God, but sometimes we need to probe a little bit deeper because if someone has a Christian veneer on a life of wickedness, and we just sort of take it face value, they're walking with God because they said a couple of christian kind of words, we're not going to actually share the truth of Jesus with that person who desperately needs to hear it. And so, you know, maybe not on these one-off conversations do we always have the opportunity to get in and really see what's going on in someone's life. But I'll be honest with you, you can have a pretty quick conversation with someone and get a sense of where they stand with God. I would argue that in most cases, if you have five minutes talking to someone, you can figure out whether they know God or not. At least as best you can tell from the outside. But a lot of it comes down to asking the right questions. In Mark 8, Jesus questions the disciples about who he is. Speaking of questions, who am I? You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. He says, to follow up, yes, that's true, and the Son of Man must suffer many things. What's Peter's response? No, 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 not that plan. Not so, Lord. What's Jesus' response to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You're not following God's plan, but your own. A little bit later in the end of the chapter there, Jesus says, do you want to follow me? You have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow after me. Sometimes we leave out the part of the gospel that says that following Jesus is costly. Because we think that it's, uh, it's not a good sales pitch. You ever try to sell something and, and the gospel is not something that we can sell, but this is a parallel that I think we can relate to. You try to sell something, you're not going to in the listing say, Here's all the rust spots. Here's all the places where there's scuffs in the paint. Here's the thing that squeaks when you do this on it. Here's the button that you have to finagle to get the thing to turn on. You don't put that in a sales ad for something you're trying to get rid of. Why? Because people aren't going to want it. To the extent that we get that mindset of this is a Facebook marketplace, Craigslist, whatever you use to sell your stuff thing, and we're trying to sort of like unload the gospel really quick and run away before the person can be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're going to cover up things that are really important about it. And one of the really important things is following Jesus will cost you everything, but you'll gain everything through it. And everything that it costs you is all of your pride, all of your self-dependence, all of your efforts to work your way to God, all of your love of sin. But what you will gain is God's kingdom in eternity with him. And all those things are worth giving up, which actually is the end of the passage. 
What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? If you lay that out before someone, following Jesus is going to be hard. If you want to come after him, there is a bunch of things that you're going to have to give up. But, are the things you're giving up worth losing your soul over? If lust rules your life, is it worth giving up physical sexual pleasure for the rest of your life if it means that you have a home with God in eternity? And I'm not saying God necessarily calls people to that in most cases, but if that were the one thing that would keep you from following God, I have to give this up and this feels really good and I want this, would you give it up if it meant eternity with God? 20 years, 40 years, 80 years of saying no to yourself so that you could be with God? Would that be worth it? What if it's you have a dream to be rich and you're like, I can be rich and satisfy my greed, which by the way is a lie, but if I could do this, then I would be happy. Is it worth chasing after money for the next 50 years if the cost of it is you have no relationship with God and you're apart from him for eternity? Is that worth it to you? And the list goes on and on. Those are two really big ones in our society, but it might be something really simple. You want a sense of community. Ironically, a lot of the people who are pushing really to us strange agendas in politics and in society, I think at the end of the day, what they're really looking for is family. And they haven't encountered God to find it in him and in the church. So they're going to the people that they think are their friends and then they find eventually that those people turn on them, don't care about them, or just using them to get what they want out of the situation. Someone like that comes to the end of life and says, I've chased after all these things and I thought it would make make me happy and none of it has. Was it worth living that way and giving up the opportunity to have life with Jesus in this life and the one after? And then the really hard question for us We start falling after him. We weigh the cost of our souls and God's blessing versus the approval of the world and and, and losing ourselves. Jesus says this hard truth. Are you ashamed of me and my words? Are you more worried about what people think than whether you're faithful to Jesus? Have you failed in that? Like Peter does, ironically, later in the book. By God's grace, begin again. Don't keep being ashamed. Don't get stuck in that moment because you can be restored in your relationship with God. In Mark 9, 31 and 10, 33 and 34, Jesus repeats his words about his coming death. The most simplistic form of the gospel is Jesus came, he died and rose again. There's a whole lot more we could say about the gospel, but at its basic form, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, I delivered to you what I first received, Christ died according to the scriptures, Christ was buried according to the scriptures, Christ rose according to the scriptures. If we're going to sum up the gospel in a really short phrase, that's probably the phrase. But there's a lot more that goes behind it. And we'll get more into that as we continue. Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 50 addresses a problem we often struggle with in our gospel work. Who's on our side in this? The disciples try to stop this man who's doing miracles but wasn't part of their group. Jesus points out it's hard to genuinely serve God and be his enemy. He says, don't hinder him for there's no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. What does this have to do with today? We need to ask ourselves this question. Are we more worried if people are sharing the gospel or agreeing with us on every point? It doesn't have to be either or. But it's really easy for us to be too picky about this. Here's what I would, how I would illustrate it. If you're in a foreign country, city of a million people, and you know of one other Christian, but that Christian believes in something that you think the Bible doesn't teach, could be something really simple. Let's say that that Christian believes that it's wrong to eat pork because the Old Testament law talks about not eating pork. 
Is that important? I mean, in some respects, yes, because if we confuse keeping the law for relationship with God, then we may not even be Christians at all. But let's say the person understands the gospel is Jesus has dealt with my sin in my place and I'm believing in him. And he thinks that this is an aspect of following Jesus in holiness in Christian life. Are you not going to fellowship with that guy because you have a disagreement about how to apply the Old Testament law? I think it's easy for us to get really, really constrained in the boundaries of what we're looking at. As far as this person a Christian, this person's not a Christian. There are issues of order in the church. The church is supposed to have a pastor. The church is supposed to have deacons. The church is supposed to follow certain practices. There are churches where those things aren't happening, but there's still a church, and by God's grace, they'll get to a point where things are in order. Let's say that it's a church where there's persecution. All the men get arrested or killed. Can it still be a church? I would argue yes, it can still be a church. The church at Philippi was still a church, even though the Philippian jailer and whoever else doesn't get saved until a while after Lydia and the other women are there, a part of the church being started. God can correct those sorts of issues. It's a bigger deal if we say, well, this person's preaching the gospel, but he's not of my denomination, so I'm not going to be encouraged by the fact that that person's preaching the gospel. This person is going out and serving God and pointing people to Jesus, but we have this really specific disagreement on practice and implementation in church. The, the music at his church doesn't sound like mine. The things they wear at his church don't look like mine. The whatever else that at the end of the things is a second or third level issue in terms of importance of doctrine in the Bible, but we get hung up on those other things, and, and, and so we'll say, all right, well, I'm going to fellowship with this person because we agree on all these second or third level issues, but I won't fellowship with this person who is preaching the gospel really fervently and emphatically and diligently because we disagree about these things. We need to sit there and ponder what Jesus is saying to the disciples. Just because they're not part of our group of 12 disciples doesn't mean that they can't be following me. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, describes the way of receiving the gospel. Like a little child, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, and whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Jesus is not highlighting, I think, every characteristic of children. He's not highlighting the fact that they cry when they're hungry, right? Necessarily, at least not here. Uh, he's not illustrating the fact that sometimes children don't share and play nicely with each other, right? He, that's not his point here. His point is, here's some children. They see Jesus. They want to come over and see Jesus, and the disciples say no. Jesus says, don't do that. Because to the extent that they want to be with me and they want to see me, that's the sort of attitude you need to have to get into God's kingdom. That we want God and we're eager to see God and so we're going to come past any obstacle to get to see him. So there is a, a tenacity. Um, one of Sarah's and my nephews loves the compost bucket at her brother's house. He thinks it's the greatest thing ever. He wants to go in there and find the orange peels and the eggshells and the lettuce and whatever else. Every single time that we've been over there in the last month or two and he's been there, there's this constant battle of keeping him out of the closet where the compost bucket is because he just loves it. Like there's, He's going to go for it. The question for us is, are we as eager to see God as that one-year-old is to see the compost bucket? Sometimes we're not. Jesus says, hey, there's a lot of things about children that maybe aren't the example, but when it comes to their determination to get to something that they really want, when it comes to their simple joy at seeing a person, how many of you ever played with a little kid? You could be doing the dumbest things and their faces will just light up. Why? Because they're happy to be around you. And then we get to be adults and we're like, uh, go to this family thing. I don't really want to do that. 
Do we have the eagerness of a little child? Do we have the tenacity of a little child? Do we have the devotion of a little child that's not particularly looking for a whole lot of things from a person? Like you could be playing with sticks in a cardboard box, and as long as it's someone they want to spend time with, they're happy to do that all day long. But when we become adults, we get calculating and what's in it for me and it has to be exactly this way or I don't want no part of it. Jesus wanted ready acceptance, eager joy, and simple faith. A little later in Mark 10, there's a warning about how riches are an obstacle to faith. The young man wants to follow Jesus. Jesus tests him. Great, I'm glad you think you've been keeping the commandments, but sell all that you have and come follow me. He's unwilling. The disciples uh, see what happens. Jesus says how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. They're amazed at his words. He says it's easier for a camel than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They're even more astonished. Who can be saved? God does the impossible. It's impossible for the rich to be saved, yet God does the impossible. We think the rich are closer to God because they're already in a pretty good position in life. And Jesus says they're harder for, it's harder for them to get to God, but God can do the impossible. Right after that, the disciples say, hey, what do we get out of following you? Jesus just said lots of stuff, lots of, from our perspective, blessings and advantages are often an obstacle to your relationship with me. And the disciples say, how can we have more of the stuff that's an obstacle to us walking with you? Don't focus on what you can get from God, especially to the extent that it may bar you from heaven. That wanting of things instead of wanting of God himself. And in the way that we communicate the gospel, we have to be really careful because it's really easy to take the gospel as follow Jesus so that he'll fix your money problems, fix your marriage, fix your kids, fix your job, fix your life. Jesus doesn't promise to do any of those things. Sometimes he does, and often he graciously works in all of those things that aren't going the way that they ought to because of sin. But if none of that gets fixed, if you go to follow Jesus and there's already problems in your marriage and your wife divorces you even more because you're following Jesus, if you go because you're having problems with your kids and those problems increase because now you're following Jesus and trying to get them to follow Jesus, if you are having problems at work and now there's more problems at work because now you're doing what's right instead of what they want you to do, your life might get dramatically harder because you're following after Jesus, but it's still the right thing to do. Not because of what you'll gain, though you gain much. Not because of how he can fix what's broken, even though he does fix what's broken, but because you simply want him for who he is, not from what you can get out of him. In Mark 10, 35 to 45, Jesus' disciples shared in his suffering and death. And I don't say that to be discouraged or morbid or say that's going to happen tomorrow, right? Sometimes it's easy for us to say society is decaying. I was talking with someone yesterday about this. You know, here's all these things that were in place legally to deal with moral evils like uh, abortion and various kinds of immorality and all these other sorts of things. And the people who are currently in power in our state want to unroll all those protections and say, we can kill anybody who's not yet been born and anybody who's over a certain age. We can sleep around with whoever we want to, whenever we want to, in whatever way we want to. We can impose all of these sorts of penalties for this, that, and the other thing. If you don't agree with our vision of morality, which is corrupt, We can hear things like that on a state level or on a national level or on a local level and say, why are the evil in power and everything's just awful? There's two ways of looking at it. This is terrible or this is an opportunity for the line to be drawn in the sand. Are you with me or are you not with me when it comes to Jesus? This is terrible or this is an opportunity for people who are chasing after all those things and find that they're miserably failing for you to share the hope of Jesus with them. This is terrible, or there's an opportunity to say, I was enslaved to 
all sorts of immorality and greed and idolatry like the people in Corinth and other places in the Gentile lands were in the New Testament. But Jesus has freed me from those. He's transferred me from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We can either see in the decay of our society, whether it's a temporary downturn in the cycle or whether it's the beginning of the slide all the way down to judgment day, we can see in those things disaster or we can see in them an opportunity to serve God, to proclaim his word. And I think we're supposed to do that, to see it as an opportunity and not to lose heart. What was God's vision? There was going to be difficulty. There was His disciples were going to share in that difficulty eventually. Why do we share the gospel? Mark 11, verses 15 through 18. God's vision for the people of Israel was that the temple would be a house of prayer for all the nations. And so in the same way, the church and God's future people, Revelation 5 and verse 9, are to be composed of all kinds of people. Let me give you an illustration of this. There's a man who is in his chariot going home from the temple, driving through the wilderness, happens to be reading the book of Isaiah. The spirit happens to pop a guy up next to him, running alongside the chariot. Hey, what are you reading? Isaiah. Do you understand what you're reading? No idea. Do you want to come explain it to me? Sure. Hops up in the chariot. They talk for how long? We don't know. They keep reading a little bit further in Isaiah. Isaiah 53 is the passage he quotes from. I think there's a pretty good shot that they got three chapters later to Isaiah 56. You know what Isaiah 56 says? The foreigner and the eunuch who attaches himself to my name will find a name and a family and eternal life. And Philip says, hey, you know what the fulfillment of that is? It's Jesus. You know who can share in that promise? It's you. Believe in Jesus. He says, all right, I want to get baptized. They're like, hey, there's a convenient pool of water. They go down in. He gets baptized. He goes up. Philip goes on his way. The Ethiopian eunuch goes on his way. Where do you think all the church fathers and people who started in Africa came from? Not just from him, but from people like him who go from Jerusalem, encounter the gospel, and take it through all of northern Africa. People like him who take the gospel to places all around north and west around the Mediterranean into Greece and Italy and Spain and Great Britain and eventually here. God's vision for salvation is people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation to come to him and be a part of what he is building in this world. Mark chapter 11, we're almost to the end here. Mark chapter 11 reminds us in verses 22 through 25 that we must forgive if we want God's forgiveness. Other passages make it clear that we forgive because God has forgiven us first. So going back to that idea of forgiveness, there needs to be forgiveness of sin. Jesus is God, so he has the power to forgive. Here, there is a clear connection between forgiveness and the reality of a relationship with God. You won't forgive how can you say you know God who's forgiven you? You won't forgive? Do you think God's going to forgive you? There's lots of parables and illustrations of this in the New Testament. Mark chapter 12, verses 10 through 11, shows us how God exalts his rejected son. The victory is going to seem hopeless at the cross, and yet God is going to be faithful to fulfill his word through Jesus. The stone that the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. It came about from the Lord, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Mark 12, 18 to 27. God is the God of the living, not of the dead. Resurrection, hope, and power are essential to a biblical gospel message. Mark 12, 28 through 34, reveal the greatest command, both for the Israelites in that day and even for us today, is to love God with all of who we are and our neighbors as ourselves. And through Jesus, we have the hope of even beginning to do this, to love God wholeheartedly and our neighbors as ourselves. Mark 12, 35 to 37 goes back to the mystery of Jesus being both God and man. Son of David, heir of David, from a human perspective, in some ways beneath or subservient or coming after David and yet preexisted before David and Lord over David. Jesus is both God and man. Another important truth from the gospel. Mark 12, 41 to 44. Sacrifice demonstrates faith in God. We see this in the example of the widow. Mark 13 has many truths. But the main one is to get ready for danger as you follow Jesus. In verse 9, it talks about them being a testimony to all of these things. 
In verse 10, the gospel being preached to all the nations. And in verses 26 through 27, that God will gather his people from among the nations. In all these things, we see God's power. The ability to be a witness, the ability to stay fast, steadfast during persecution, and the ability for God to gather his people in the midst of when everything is falling apart and the world is a world system. That's all evidence of God's power that gives us hope in the fulfillment of the gospel. Mark chapter 14, verses 8 and 9. Jesus said he would be buried. His death was real, not faked. In verses 10 and 11, he said he would be betrayed and his word was fulfilled in verses 43 and 52 through 52 when Judas comes and betrays him. A little bit later in the chapter, Jesus commands the disciples to watch and pray before the testing. Verse 34 to 38, but they didn't. How often do you and I try to witness and commit ourselves and live out the task that God's called us to, but we're not ready because we haven't prayed for God's help? We need to be praying for God's work. His work often continues even when we haven't prayed, but how much more effective when we have prayed and God's power stands behind the words and the efforts that we're making. Jesus, in chapter 14, verses 53 to 72, is falsely accused and stands quietly before Pilate with a simple you said it to the question about his authority and position as the king of the Jews, fulfilling Isaiah 53. Jesus is mocked, crucified, and died. All of these are essential truths about the gospel that we need to share with people. But we don't stop there. Jesus in victory rose from the dead. Chapter 16, verses 4 through 8. He's risen. He's not here anymore. Verse 6. Go, he's going ahead to Galilee. And his followers went out not without fear, but despite their fear. God calls us to do the same. So to summarize what we've seen from Mark, the gospel message is about Jesus and God's coming kingdom. Through what we call sinners to turn from their sin and to follow Jesus. We may see a response of faith when someone listens, or a response of curiosity when they want to hear more, or a response of rejection because they have no interest in it at this moment. Regardless, we should not be surprised and we should not quit sharing the message. Following Jesus involves persecution and hardship, not just easy times, but it is worth everything. So don't be ashamed of Jesus or his words in this sinful world. Encourage those you meet to receive Jesus simply as a child would and to believe the truth recorded about his perfect life and death. Go out not because you have no fear. Go out because you are afraid, but Jesus' resurrection power is greater than anything you might be afraid of. Preach the gospel about Jesus to sinners, no matter what. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all these truths from the gospel of Mark. I know we went through them in a hurry, and, and there are so many different things here we could focus on. I pray in future weeks that as you focus on one or two aspects of what it means to understand the gospel and to share the gospel, that you would bring many of these truths to mind again. We pray now for wisdom and the decisions that we're making for the church. Help us not to lose sight of why we exist as a church, to tell people about you and then to call those people to follow you and that we're all part of that process right now. Help us to keep that in mind in all these things. We thank you for this morning that we've gathered together. Amen.